Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. The families of 14 loved ones who died in a West Virginia jail in the past year are demanding a federal investigation into what they say is negligence on the part of the state authorities. The 14th death was recorded at the Southern Regional Jail in Beaver, West Virginia. Herbert Doss, 48, who had been incarcerated for three months, died of causes that are not yet known. The alarming spat of deaths has triggered protests from the West Virginia Poor People's Campaign, a branch of the nationwide movement. The campaign has joined bereaved families and other advocacy groups to file a complaint to the Civil Rights Division of the U.S. Justice Department, calling for a full federal investigation into the senseless and tragic deaths. Families working with the Poor People's Campaign have accused state officials of failing to thoroughly investigate the deaths. Kim Burks, whose son, Quantes Burks, 37, died on the 1st of March, 2022, less than 24 hours after being admitted to the Southern Regional Jail, said, quote, We will not let this injustice stand. We are never going to stop until we get justice for Quan. An independent autopsy organized by the family found signs of blunt force trauma on Quantes' body, including fractured ribs, consistent with being handcuffed while being beaten. In the past decade, more than 100 inmates have died in West Virginia regional jails. The spat of 13 deaths at Southern Regional Jail alone in 2022 marked a disturbing increase in mortalities, up from only one death at the institution in 2018. Alabama state officials voted last week to increase the amount the state will pay a private company to build a new prison in Elmore County to nearly $1 billion. The resolution was passed by the Alabama Correctional Institution Finance Authority, a group of seven state officials who have final authority over all financial decisions related to building or leasing state prisons. In April 2022, Alabama signed a contract with Montgomery-based cattle construction company to build a 4,000-bed prison in Elmore County. The initial guaranteed maximum price for the prison was $623 million, with construction to be completed by January 2026. The resolution passed last week raised the maximum price to $975 million, a 57% increase, and pushed back completion to June 2026. The contract to build the Elmore facility was given to Cadell after Alabama lawmakers passed a bill allowing state agencies to circumvent the standard competitive bid process. This is the second billion-dollar commitment made by the Alabama Department of Corrections in two months. In February, ADOC entered a $1 billion contract with private prison medical provider YesCare. The billion-dollar contract for a single 4,000-bed prison is roughly equivalent to the budget of the entire Alabama Department of Mental Health, which provides services to more than 200,000 Alabamians annually. We start off this episode with our monthly roundup of prison disturbances, as compiled by Perilous Chronicle. On the morning of Wednesday, March 1st, two prisoners escaped from Pittsburgh County Jail in McAllister, Oklahoma. The two prisoners busted a hole in the ceiling near the shower area and pulled down some more metal in an area not surveilled by cameras. 
They then climbed through the ceiling and used a radio tower to climb down the roof. Both prisoners were captured shortly after escaping. On Monday, March 6th, a disturbance was reported at the Cameron County Jail in Brownsville, Texas. The cause of the disturbance has not been reported, but according to Cameron County Sheriff Eric Garza, prisoners flooded their cells, they took wiring off the walls, the ceilings, they damaged some of the events. The disturbance lasted for about 45 minutes and the correction emergency response team was called to the facility. No information was provided about the use of force or injuries. On the evening of March 9th, several prisoners inside Rock Island County Jail in Illinois refused to return to their cells and to follow department procedure. Staff used less lethal devices to force the prisoners into their cells. No injuries were reported and participants are not yet facing additional charges. On March 20th, two prisoners escaped from the Newport News Jail in Newport News, Virginia. Allegedly, the prisoners used tools such as toothbrushes to access untied rebars between the jail walls, allowing them to climb over the security wall. They were shortly recaptured in Hampton, Virginia, early Tuesday morning, March 21st, 2023. On Wednesday, March 8th, a group of protesters gathered outside the DeKalb County Jail outside Atlanta to hold a noise demonstration, letting those inside know they weren't forgotten. Three days before the protest, cops from several jurisdictions arrested 35 people during a Stop Cop City event in the Weelani Forest in DeKalb County. 23 of those people were then charged with domestic terrorism and locked in the jail. In the midst of the protest, jail detainees inside smashed out several windows of their cells and some threw flaming material out the windows, causing small fires to burn on a ledge of the building's upper stories. Protesters also used a projector to cast messages on the side of the jail, including no cop city on stolen land. An unknown number of prisoners at the Ohio State Penitentiary started a hunger strike in mid-March in response to retaliation from guards according to outside supporters who submitted a call to action to Workers' World. According to the group, guards have been retaliating against prisoners by forcing them to stand in the showers for hours on end. In response, the prisoners launched a hunger strike to push back together. The prisoners released a list of demands including increased programming, increased food portions, reduction in commissary prices, and more oversight over guard behavior from the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections Central Office. On Saturday, February 25th, a group of seven prisoners at the Champaign County Jail in Illinois launched a hunger strike in response to excessive bail and a lack of access to legal resources. Quote, we the inmates of Champaign County Jail understand the following, the strikers began in a statement released to the Champaign County Bailout Coalition. Our Eighth Amendment rights are being violated. Bonds that are so excessive that we could never afford are quantifiably no different than having no bond at all. Though the strikers were reportedly joined by others throughout the duration of the strike, all original strikers had resumed receiving meals by March 11th. In February of 2021, Illinois became the first state to eliminate cash bail through the Pre-Trial Fairness Act. However, the new law scheduled to take effect on January 1st, 2023, has stalled in court due to an ongoing lawsuit. 
Meanwhile, the population at Champaign County Sheriff's Office is at an all-time high of approximately 320 people, according to Brian Dolinar of Smile Politely. In the early hours of Sunday, March 19th, a group of six youth prisoners at Echo Glen Children's Center, a juvenile detention facility about 30 miles east of Seattle, locked themselves in a wing of the facility known as Cottage 9 and armed themselves with shanks. According to the King County Sheriff's Office, the youth prisoners demanded McDonald's and threatened to burn mattresses. The Sheriff's Office reported that their crisis negotiation team took the youth prisoners into custody without injury after a half hour of talking with the children. On February 27th and 28th, a group of approximately 300 immigrant detainees at the Central Louisiana Ice Processing Center in Gina, Louisiana, launched a two-day hunger strike to protest their prolonged incarceration in miserable conditions and to demand their immediate release, according to the group Detention Watch Network. Hunger strikers are courageous individuals, putting their lives on the line to protest and draw attention to the inhumane and unjust nature of immigration detention, said Omero Lopez Jr., legal director of ISLA. These organized protests are not taken on lightly and are intended to demonstrate the urgent need for all people to be released from detention now. At least 80 ICE detainees held at facilities in Kern County, California, launched a hunger strike February 17th. A press release by the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights explained that the strikers are demanding the immediate release of all individuals detained at the facilities and the shutdown of both detention centers owned and operated by the private prison contractor GEO Group. Detained people have described living conditions in both facilities as abhorrent and soul-crushing. As of March 29th, according to the ACLU, the strike has ended at both the Golden State Annex in McFarland and the Mesa Verde Ice Processing Center in Bakersfield. The protests ended after weeks of threats of retaliation from the staff. Four detainees were quickly transferred to a facility in Texas on March 7th, allegedly to disrupt the protests and instill fear of similar retaliation in others. Angela Davis recently released this statement condemning the proposed Cop City Training Center. During a recent trip to Atlanta, in order to participate in a symposium in honor of the great Guyanese revolutionary Walter Rodney, I regret that I failed to use that opportunity to add my voice to the rising chorus of demands to stop cop city. So let me do that now. In the first place, if the attempts by the Atlanta police to build the largest police training grounds in the country are successful, this will represent a major setback for the movement for radical democratic futures, not only throughout the US, but globally as well. As a person who has participated in campaigns against prisons and police for 
far longer than a half century. I want to salute all those who are involved in the Stop Cop City movement. And I want to urge people everywhere to find ways to generate support for them. Atlanta activists are on the front lines of the abolitionist movement at its crucial intersection with movements to save our forests, indeed, to save our planet. This is an especially important time to speak out simultaneously against organized police racism and repression and the destruction of our planet. During the last years, and especially in the aftermath of police murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and too many others to mention, a new collective consciousness regarding the structural character of racism has taken shape. Many of us recognize the insistence on old modes of policing as an attempt at a further entrenchment of racial capitalism, promoting authoritarianism, political repression, and fear-mongering around crime as the battle cries of the right. Attacks on progressive school curricula, critical race theory, Black studies and queer theory are also a part of this effort. In short, the attempt to build a massive militarized police training facility is a dangerous and ominous development that we have to oppose with all our might. And so I want to join those who are standing strong in defense of the forest against the construction of this police training ground. I stand with those who condemn the police killing of Manuel Esteban Paez Teran, the Venezuelan non-binary eco-activist known as Tortuguita. And I want to stand with those who are demanding bail for all of those arrested for attempting to stop Cop City. I urge people everywhere to join the campaign to stop Cop City. Please go to the website stopcop.city. And now we finish sharing a panel hosted by Haymarket Books on the abolitionist struggle to stop Cop City. In this section, we hear Hugh Farrell in conversation with organizer Kwame Olafemi of Community Movement Builders and journalist Micah Herskin, who walk us through the current state of repression and momentum in the Stop Cop City movement. Of course, Georgia is not the only state that has these domestic terrorism laws, all of these critical infrastructure laws that have been, you know, passed in relation to various pipeline protests. This is, you know, one of the state's strategies going forward to crack down on movements. Um, and, you know, I think that they know a lot of these charges probably won't stick. Um, you know, some of the folks on, on their warrants have had 
um, really, really nothing more than anything that would amount to criminal trespass. Um, part of how they've identified folks on warrants have included things like being a known member of an abolitionist movement, people having mud on their shoes, indicating that they were in the forest, um, you know, or at the festival while this action happened. Um, and so I think that, you know, the, the crackdown is really severe and they know that, you know, charges don't have to stick in order to ruin someone's life, in order to extract an enormous amount of money in bail costs and lawyer fees, in order to scare people away from the movement. And so all of this is to say, you know, the police repression and the police violence has been really severe. Of course, in January, um, as Sarah lifted up at the very beginning, uh, you know, a crew of police marched into the Wilani forest and really murdered in cold blood Tortuguita. Um, and, you know, their, their, Tortuguita's mother has been, you know, active now in the cause ever since then and, you know, fighting for justice and not even justice, but, you know, even just information about what happened for her child. Um, when, when police first killed Tortuguita, they, of course, did what police do, which is tell everybody, oh, here's why this person deserved to be executed by the state. And, you know, they began to paint this narrative. Um, and, you know, regardless of what the actual details are, this was a political assassination. Um, but as, as body camera footage has come out, there's body camera footage, not of the event, but of Atlanta police officers speculating that the cop who was shot in the middle of this raid was actually hit by friendly fire and not by anyone shooting at them. So, you know, as all the details come out, they continue to confirm the story from on the ground that, you know, this was a political assassination. Um, beyond the arrests, and, I'll, and I'll, actually I'll just take a moment here to plug, and I think we'll drop it in the chat. Um, the Atlanta Solidarity Fund is an organization that is coordinating legal representation for criminalized protesters. So please donate to them. Um, and then the Atlanta Community Press Collective um, has really been this incredible information um, wing of, of the, you know, so much information has come out through their open records requests. They're one of the rare outlets that are not owned by corporations in Atlanta. And so, um, you know, please support those two orgs if you can. Um, I'll just close by, you know, by saying, oh, yeah, two, two quick things. One is also during the week of action, there were clergy actions. Um, you know, there were preschoolers who held marches. There was um, a massive day um, of action against national police terror and black led organizations in Atlanta, sort of refuting this narrative that the people who are part of this movement are all white outside agitators from the North, which is a narrative that goes back, you know, decades and decades to the civil rights movement and before. Um, and so there was also so much beauty from this week and, you know, the movement built a lot of power um, and is ready to keep on taking on Cop City. To end my part quickly, there was a question in the chat about sort of what is the vision for this land, um, if not Cop City, and I'll name a couple things. One is that in 2017, the city actually approved a plan that would have incorporated this land into a broader stretch of parkland and forest land, um, you know, that could be enjoyed by the community. Um, there's also, however, been calls even just this past week from um, a group of, um, of clergy and indigenous leaders um, calling for land back, noting that this is, you know, indigenous land that was stolen and this is land that is in a majority black community. Um, and that actually, you know, the people from whom this land was stolen and the people who live there deserve a say in what the vision for this land should be. And so, you know, in, th there is a vision that was slated by the city that they went back on, but then there's also the need, um, you know, to push forward with a more radical vision of land back and really figuring out what it looks like to live together and, you know, do justice for, um, you know, for folks who have been stolen from and, you know, killed for, for centuries. Thank you so much, both of you all. I wanted to say before, I think we'll be able to get to one question at least, uh, but before we go any further, I just wanted to uh, go ahead and say thank you so much to Naomi Murakawa as well and Nicole Siegel, who just put in 
an enormous amount of work to make this panel happen. And to John McDonald and Amanda Lundberg from Haymarket and everyone in Haymarket uh, for hosting and for just a huge amount of technical work. And also uh, just to uh, build on what Micah said, to say thank you to the Atlanta Solidarity Fund. All funds raised through this event will go to the Solidarity Fund who've uh, done an inhuman amount of work to uh, support people inside, to get people out, and uh, to make sure that their loved ones uh, feel supported and looked after as the state continues to hammer at the movement. And I also just wanna say thank you that even as the state hammers at the movement, just to express our gratitude to everyone who's been out in the streets and in the forest, absolutely everyone, uh, because you know it's been incredible that as the state tries to uh, basically every tool in its toolbox to break the movement, the movement only demonstrates its capacity for resilience, for care, and to grow, uh, to not shrink back from the challenge. And so I just wanna say thank you to anyone who might be watching who's participated in any way. As far as that goes, I wanted to go to a question uh, in terms of action and solidarity, which was the question is, what can those outside of Georgia do to put pressure on the corporations who are underwriting Cop City? And should there be calls for a national boycott of particular project products or actions against particular companies? So thank you for that question. And I'd like to put it to anyone who can jump in. Well, I can say quickly, um... I think this will be dropped in the chat, but if you go to stopcopcitysolidarity.org, um, that is an incredible website that's been built out that has um, a map of you know the various corporate um, supporters across the country. Um, and folks have been hosting solidarity events, solidarity demonstrations um, outside of these outside of these corporations and sites, um, you know, all all over the country. And so you know, there's there's ways to plug in there. Um, you can host a fundraiser for the Solidarity Fund. You can host a teach-in where you are. Um, you can come to Atlanta if you want to. Um, you know, contrary to what folks might say, there is, um, you know, this is a local-led movement that has national and international implications. And so, you know, every we do need everybody engaged um, because, you know, as as um, Stuart said, you know, cop city is coming everywhere. They're turning every, they want to turn every city into a cop city. Um, and so, you know, the solidarity needs to, needs to be across the board. And along those lines, I just wanted to ask everyone, uh, we've talked about abolitionist genealogies. We've talked about the national and international implications of policing and police training and thus also of police abolition. And as abolitionists uh, around the country and the world are thinking about this movement, what are the particular ways that abolitionists can coordinate and think together, uh, both to fight against Cop City, but also to build from uh, what's already been, uh, the ground that's already been established by the movement in Atlanta? I think one thing, I don't know if this is really the answer you were looking for, but one thing I think is really important and really interesting to be able to see is, you know, I think it's really, as an organizer, I think it's really important that we're learning from uh, other organizers who have gone through this before, right? So uh, there was the Cop Academy that was in, um, you know, Chicago. We've had conversations within even just the organizing with folks that have been a part of that movement. Um, even for our uh, rally in March this past Thursday, we had um, somebody that came down from Chicago specifically uh, to speak at that, share knowledge and, and, and some of the information, how we can, you know, organize together through that. 
And so one of the through lines I think that's really important and significant is that, you know, the state and the propaganda machine has this narrative about outside agitators coming into Atlanta to, you know, resist this movement, right? One of the things I always like to say to that is, one, y'all are putting, again, 47% of the people that are trained at that facility are going to be from outside of the outside of Georgia. So if y'all are going to be having y'all's tactics, exporting y'all's tactics of fascism against uh, our communities all across the nation and, and even the world, we have a responsibility even to be able to come and coalesce and learn from one another to be able to how to know how to resist those tactics, right? And so I think that's extremely important for us to be able to learn from each other and learn from movements um, uh, that we're facing against each other, uh, against you know the the these systems that are oppressing and repressing re repressing all of us. Uh, to that other point, I think one of the lessons I've learned in, in this in particular is the this idea of manufacturing consent, right? I think that has been a through line of a tool used by the state throughout this entire process. From the beginning, um, when they were even announcing the ordinances, when they had passed um, uh, places for comment, when they were first announced the ordinance of Cop City, they would try to mute people's microphones so that the only people that could speak were the representatives from Atlanta Police Foundation. Even more recently, we've had, um, you know, when the when the Atlanta University uh, City students spoke out, they had um, you know they had a they had uh, the Andre Mary Andre Dickens came to speak with them. They muted all of the the microphones so that only they, the only people that could hear from streaming was Andre Dickens and and their comments. Had a closed meeting that was only that wasn't open to the public when this is obviously a public issue. Even um, now, when we saw saw the arrest this past um, or or last weekend. Um, um, or the, 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 la the past Sunday that Micah was mentioning, um, then when, when they were making those arrests, they were making those arrests in a way that would fit the narrative of what they were already putting out, that these were white outside agitators, right? So they literally, when they were making these mass arrests, they detained masses of people, right? And separated those people based off of their driver's licenses, where if you were in the state of Georgia, you were in one group of people. If you were outside the state of Georgia, you were in a separate group and then proceeded to only arrest those people that were outside the state of Georgia. And so um, this manufacturing consent and, manuf and, and totaling their propaganda with what they were actually, how they're actually policing and arresting people. Well, it looks, it looks like we just lost Kwame, um, but, but, but the point that he was uplifting um, that maybe I can just finish off about sort of this outside agitator narrative is, you know, there's, there's a very clear state attempt here to, you know, paint a certain image of what the Stop Cop City movement is. And they're savvy in terms of, you know, in terms, you know, as soon as they made those 23 arrests, they plastered the mostly white faces of folks who had been arrested, you know, all over the internet because they want to create a certain image. And so um, I think, yeah, I think that's a really, a really important point, you know, for our movements everywhere of, you know, the, 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 the counterinsurgent, you know, um, trends that are happening, the tactics that they're using. We'll have the other segments of this panel on our website, kitelineradio.org, or check out Haymarket Press's YouTube channel to watch it online. This has been KiteLine. Please reach out if you have a news item we should cover, if you want to volunteer, or just to tell your story. Email us at 
KiteLine at WFHB.org, or send us a letter at KiteLine, care of WFHB, 108 West 4th Street, Bloomington, Indiana, 47404. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.